now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode four of the Improving the System season, Just Science interviews Sarah Chu, Senior Advisor on Forensic Science Policy at the Innocence Project, about their work to end wrongful conviction. Organizations like the Innocence Project work tirelessly to put an end to wrongful convictions. They rely on people familiar with both policy and forensic science, people like Sarah Chu. Listen along as she discusses the Innocence Project and the impact that it has had on the criminal justice system in this episode of Just Science. The recording originally took place on May 5th, 2018, and some data may have changed since then. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host. I'm with NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence and the Center for Forensic Science at RTI. If you're listening to Just Science, thank you for listening. I hope you're subscribing on the channel on which you, uh, you're getting this podcast from. And, and today we have with us somebody who is uh, very much committed to that issue and from an organization that has had an enormous impact on forensic science over uh, the last few decades. We have Sarah Chu with us from the Innocence Project. Sarah started with the Innocence Project in 2008 and is the senior advisor on forensic science policy there, supporting policy work that focuses on improving the validity and reliability of forensic science. Before joining the Innocence Project, uh, she worked in executive search and was a middle school science teacher in the New York City public schools and also represents her community on a local community board. During her academic career, she published work in plant biology and musculoskeletal epidemiology. So she actually comes from the science side with a bachelor's degree from UC San Diego in biochemistry and cell biology and a master's in biology and a master's in epidemiology from Stanford University. Welcome to Just Science. Thanks, John. Of course, I used to be in the world's biggest law firm at the Justice Department back a while ago now, and we were all scientists, and, and it was very unusual to be a scientist. Do you find it interesting or, or a challenge to be uh, a scientist among all the lawyers at the Innocence Project? As a scientist at the Innocence Project, what I've re really appreciated is that the work that we've been doing, the policies that we pursue are evidence-based. And that's been an important part of how we develop our policy efforts. And so in that sense, I've felt that um, I've been able to exercise uh, my scientific muscles. And at the same time, it's been really instructive for me to see the criminal justice system from the perspective of attorneys and how they think through issues and um, what's possible and not in the course of litigation. So from the legal perspective, things are a lot harder than they seem. And from the scientific perspective, things are a lot harder than they seem um, in terms of moving, you know, either the legal or scientific world. It's been really helpful to have kind of this dichotomy of experience. I really appreciate people who are able to straddle two very different worlds like that. And and I think that you're at a very key 
position in that regard. A lot of people in the forensic science community say, hey, we're the forensic science community over here, and the Innocence Project is this thing over there. And for at least the next, what, half hour, 40 minutes, or however long we do this podcast, I want everybody to kind of step inside your world, which is trying to bring those two things together to try to make forensic science better. And something that I think is a challenge for everyone who works in the criminal justice system and specifically for those with an interest in forensic science is just how different the legal and the scientific worlds are and that in developing this field called forensic science, we've really kind of taken oil and water and thrown them together and try to mix them up and expect things to work without, um, I was just about to get into something really nerdy and say like without the proper multiplication or something. But science and law are really different. And so of course there's going to be conflict and of course there are going to be issues that require a lot of work to solve. And unfortunately, in the past, there hasn't been this multi-dimensional, multi-stakeholder and kind of diverse stakeholder approach to um, the issues in the criminal justice system. And that that's one of the great things that the 2009 NAS report has facilitated. The report committee itself was um, composed of diversity of stakeholders with a supermajority of scientists and forensic scientists, which I think is really important. So I think that our concept of the scientific community in forensic science and the people who need to be at the table and the people who um, should be opining and advising on the work that forensic scientists do, how the work is integrated into the system, has become more complex and um, and richer since 2009. Well, I think it's very interesting because the criminal justice system in general is based on people who are making you know, their own judgment on, their, on the basis of almost their own opinion or viewpoint. Forensic scientists really are one of the few places, if not maybe even not that, the only place, where we're trying to really decide this is going to be something objective. We're going to scientifically determine something. And, we, and, and our intention is to have, as you put it, validity and reliability in what we're saying in a way that's very different from anybody else in the system. I think it was inevitable because of that that forensic science was going to get right into the middle of the issues that Innocence Project uh, really highlighted, which is that hey, there's, there's people here who are being put uh, in prison who were innocent, and the system let them down. And it was the power of that message from the scientific community through forensic science. That, hey, there's, there's, there's an objective truth that can be dealt with in some cases that allows us to be more just than we would be otherwise. Right. And I think that that's something that Barry and Peter discovered early on, that foundationally valid and valid as applied DNA evidence um, had the power to be the neutral, objective, and accurate truth teller in the criminal justice system. And forensic DNA has revolutionized what we know about the criminal justice system. It's kind of revealed the areas that that we didn't know were issues in the first place. And we now know that DNA isn't present in 
most cases. So for that reason, the Innocence Project has a focus on improving non-DNA forensic science because there are so many other cases that need to be solved and can only be solved with non-DNA forensic science. So let's take a step back and look at the uh, cases in which the Innocence Project has identified an exoneration post-conviction. So what's the what's the tally at right now? Do you, do you know what the exoneration telephone has, has, has reached at this point? You know, that's a good question. I don't remember exactly how many cases the Innocence Project is responsible for, but there are currently 356 DNA exonerations, of which I believe about 150 may have been Innocence Project clients. There's an Innocence Network that includes organizations from across the country. Most of them are local or state-based. Some of them do work nationally as well. And there are organizations that are also committed to providing pro bono assistance to people with claims of innocence. So together, the Innocence Network has uh, made up this group of people who are working on post-conviction cases where people have claims of innocence. And the National Registry of Exonerations gives you a sense of all the DNA and non-DNA exonerations that have been revealed or achieved in the country since, I believe, 1989. And we don't need to be exact here, but roughly half, half of those cases have involved some kind of forensic science error or misconduct. Of the DNA exonerations, which is a particular subset of the larger group of exonerations, Of the 356 DNA exonerations to date, we found that about 45% of the cases involved uh, the misapplication of forensic evidence as a contributor to the wrongful conviction. Which means that there could have been other contributors as well. Exactly. And there's more research happening now on how the different contributors to wrongful conviction may have interactions with each other or how one may affect the other. So that will be an interesting area of scholarship to learn more about as more research is published. But uh, in many cases, there are more than one contributor to the wrongful conviction at hand. Yeah, it certainly is true even within the forensic discipline. There are, of course, some well-known disciplines that have contributed a disproportionate share to those errors uh, and mistakes. Obviously, we think of hair morphology or microscopy, the bite mark evidence, and that kind of thing, although some of the less obvious candidates do. I mean, a DNA mixture interpretation is a fairly big contributor to that group, uh, at least to the data that I last saw. In a publication in the Albany Law Review, my colleagues, Dr. Emily West and Vanessa Maturko, published a paper that describes DNA exonerations. And at that point, there were 325 DNA exonerations. And the table shows that among the cases where there was a misapplication, that there were 84 serology cases, 73 hair cases, 9 bite mark, 8 DNA, 6 dog scents, 3 fingerprint and 10 that fell into the other bucket in terms of the forensic disciplines that were involved in some of these exoneration cases. Sure. It's interesting. I didn't know serology ranked that highly. So I guess that's a symptom of some of these cases being older cases where some of the DNA methods just weren't uh, weren't available. The technology wasn't available. And so, so serology was the only thing available at the time. Right. And it's important for me to share that just because a case 
included a misapplied piece of forensic evidence doesn't mean that there wasn't also a valid evidence that was presented or testified to properly. But it is important to recognize that among the cases where there was a misapplication, that there were instances where unreliable or invalid forensic discipline was used. There were instances where an insufficiently validated method was used beyond the limits of science. Cases where there was misleading testimony, and that could have happened in cases where the discipline itself was valid, but the testimony was not, or there was testimony beyond the limits of what science has proven in a particular discipline. Uh, In a few cases, there were simple mistakes, and then there were the cases of misconduct that I think most people have heard about. Many of these cases, and probably most of them, there was forensic science that was done properly as it should be. So that certainly should be should be recognized. But by the same idea, these cases aren't exhaustive of the issues that we are facing. I mean, uh, we know that there have been uh, folks doing uh, controlled substance analysis or toxicology analyses that were uh, uh, done fraudulently or dry labbed in a variety of places, as well as other other issues that we're facing in the crime laboratory community and. And uh, I, for one, am like, I feel very strongly about the value of forensic uh, science and about the people involved in it, and so strongly that I'm willing to look right in the face and say, hey, there are more problems than just are presented within the, the DNA exoneration universe. Absolutely, absolutely. And I believe about 97% of our cases are some sort of violent crime, and only 3% fall into that other bucket. And so there is a whole realm of types of crime or uh, forensic disciplines that aren't covered or aren't involved in these DNA exonerations. And DNA exonerations only give you a picture into cases where DNA is available in a case, has been retained in a case, and available for testing, and where testing has been able to help determine guilt or innocence. And so it is a very specific population. But you're right, there are forensic disciplines that could be improved. And I have heard folks say, well, there's never been an exoneration in my area um, of practice, and so this discipline must be valid, and that those are two separate things. And there's also a lot of work that can be done to improve the quality management processes of these high-throughput type of disciplines like controlled substances that would make a market improvement and reach more people in terms of what the benefits of improving processes and systems in those areas would be. I don't think we've really paid enough attention in the right way to the exonerations. To, To me, they're each like a, a plane crash, right? Something where something went wrong. And as an engineer, I appreciate the fact that this is a great opportunity to learn. Here's something we can learn from and then do better the next time on so that we don't make another mistake. I'm not thrilled that there was a mistake, but I'm excited about the opportunity to learn from it and, and improve our practice that way. Yeah. And errors and mistakes don't have to be controversial, and they don't have to be called a scandal. And unfortunately, that that's the fear of addressing error in forensic science and in the criminal justice system as a whole. 
we have to train our system to be able to deal with errors in an open and transparent way. And I would submit that controversy or the media echo chamber that people fear, it's not based on the existence of the problem, that all of these things are fed by the resistance to correcting the problem. That statement is almost why I wanted you and Victor on, Sarah, because I think a lot of folks in forensic science, as we've alluded to this us and them thing with the Innocence Project, and sometimes the, the rhetoric has been difficult for forensic scientists to listen to because it has been more rhetoric, more heat and light on some of these issues. As an example, Dwayne Jackson was a young man who was exonerated by the Las Vegas Metro Police Department Crime Lab when they discovered through a subsequent case that there was inadvertent sample switch that resulted in the identification of the wrong person in the case. The lab handled it in a remarkable way. They put out a press release. They put out a YouTube video where everyone along the chain of responsibility took ownership for the error that happened. The criminal justice system in the Las Vegas metro jurisdiction, they compensated Mr. Jackson and they were incredibly responsive in a transparent way that was really unique. And I hope that they felt that by approaching it with transparency and with the thoughtfulness that they did, and by owning the mistake that happened and not pointing fingers at individual analysts, at the end of the day, now that they've practiced this process, they found that it was not as painful as they thought it might have been. And the press that came from Dwayne Jackson's exoneration was very different than what you might see right now in the state of Massachusetts covering the Annie Dukin or the Sonia Farrick cases. In this whole context, Innocence Project obviously has a very unusual place. And, and of course, you have, have a front row seat here. How does the Innocence Project view its role in forensic science improvement? And where are you all looking to see very specific changes in forensic science practice or policy? <laughs> At the national level, we've been focused since the 2009 NAS report on pursuing the implementation of the principles of the NAS report. And in looking at the 13 recommendations, we decided to focus first on the recommendations that could only be done at the national level. So we focused on improving funds for federally funded forensic science research, that there be a system to establish standards for forensic practice that's based on that research or other evidence. And when possible, if there are quality management or process improvements that we could support that would um, benefit the forensic science system. That has been our focus at the national level. And more recently, we started to look at the state level. Now that the National Commission on Forensic Science is no longer in existence. There isn't a voice out there that represents the stakeholders in the criminal justice system on forensic science. And thankfully, we have the great example of the Texas Forensic Science Commission and RTI's State Forensic Science Commission report to help us as we are embarking on an effort to help states create independent entities that can institutionalize the duty to correct and duty to notify. 
So Sarah knows, and uh, I don't know what we actually haven't done a podcast in the State Forensic Science Commission uh, yet. So this is a great opportunity to talk about it. That I'm a huge supporter of uh, the establishment of State Forensic Science Commission, in part to deal with this issue of stakeholders and, and getting their voice heard in the process, but also in terms of helping be an advocate for forensic science itself. You know, to to help crime laboratories access federal funds more efficiently, for them to get in front of state and local policy leaders more effectively, and also because that's where all the crime is being adjudicated. <laughs> it really isn't at the national level. There is obviously some work there being done there. No matter what the National Commission had been able to do or not do, state commissions would still have a vital role to play in making the policy into reality. Right. And the State Forensic Science Commissions can play a role in both ensuring justice and ensuring support for the forensic science service providers in the state. So we've been thinking a lot about where commissions could be located and how that would work within each state. It's incredible how diverse state oversight structures are. And the way that a commission is designed through either its duties and responsibilities or perhaps through its specific location, they can become a platform for advocacy for um, forensic science support to ensure that laboratories are getting the funding that they need, but also to help laboratories promulgate practices to do what accreditation can't do. So for a long time, accreditation was looked at as the, the best form of oversight for the forensic science community. And what I think we've learned over the years is that it's really limited. It's a baseline for all operating laboratories, for sure. And a laboratory couldn't exist without a proper quality management process. But accreditation is limited very much by the policies and protocols that a lab chooses to adopt. So Forensic Science Commission could help promulgate the best policies. It could help ease labs into adopting emerging science. It can help advocate for the funds that are needed to ensure and the implementation and the integration of this emerging science into the forensic laboratories. So the leadership, the accountability, the oversight responsibilities that a forensic science commission would have would be an incredibly important organizing point for forensic science in a state. The state forensic science commission not only helps to pull together this idea of a quality management system, but it also is a way to promulgate some of the things that are research-based best practices or some of these national standards into place. You know, one of the other things that you all have been involved in is professional certification, which is also something that a state forensic science commission can, can help help with. Texas is the first example, the statewide entity that is really requiring certification. And in the past, when we've had conversations with forensic science leaders, what we've been told is that competency, the demonstration of competency, is more important than organizational certification. And so certification hasn't been something that we have put on our front burner, and it'll be interesting to see how Texas handles it. They're planning on doing it in a very different way. And integral to the Texas certification program is probably one of the best code of professional responsibilities 
in the country. So I think even just bringing everyone to this consensus level of practice in accordance with their code of professional responsibility would be an incredible thing. Yeah. Well, we're recording this a week before the meeting of the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors, and the theme this year is leadership. We've actually touched on several core aspects of it during the podcast year. One, of course, is this uh, issue of learning from errors and having an uh, open and transparent way to air out errors and being willing to be confident about that and let that happen. The other part of this point is definitely what you mentioned, the code of professional responsibility, of ethics, of, of having a moral compass in all forensic practice, and not just about yourself, but your expectations on everybody around you in the organization. And all of that kind of goes together if you're going to have an effective forensic science organization. Yeah, I agree. It is a complete package. And I hesitate to call it a moral compass because I think that forensic scientists have to operate in the system in which they find themselves. I think that there are a lot of people who are forced into situations or find themselves in situations that are really difficult to navigate. And so a code of professional responsibility that makes it okay to make an error as long as you address it, that takes a just culture approach to um, addressing problems and is focused on addressing the error rather than punishing the individual. A system that does that, which I think is a system that the Texas Forensic Science Commission has cultivated in the state of Texas, would do so much to improve forensic practice, to improve the lives of the forensic scientists who go into this work with a mission, with a dedication to justice. If you have a science degree, there are so many more ways to make money than to go into forensic <laughs> science. And right. the people who do are really committed to what they believe forensic science means to the criminal justice system and what they want to do in terms of being able to practice their science in a way that improves lives. And so I think that creating these error-embracing systems is important for improving the quality of work life for forensic scientists. If you look at Texas, one of the ways that it's done that is that the commission has changed the culture in Texas. So labs are disclosing frequently to the commission, and they do it in this open and transparent forum. The commission actually had to create a policy on what you do and don't disclose because they were getting too much disclosure from laboratories. But most of the time, by the time a lab has disclosed to the commission in a timely way, they've already started thinking about the corrective actions and the number of cases that they're going to review. And so there's this instant application of the duty to correct, and the commission has taken on the duty to notify. And if you look at the kind of work that they're doing, they are doing a statewide review of DNA interpretation. Texas is the seat of bite mark comparison, and the commission has recommended a moratorium on the use of bite mark comparison. There are a number of cases that they've investigated that have called into question tens of thousands of cases. And in any other environment, one of those instances alone would have generated unending press and calls about scandal. But because the Forensic Science Commission takes each one of these problems on, 
everyone in the community there, the stakeholders, the forensic scientists, law enforcement, the defenders, the prosecutors, take a collective deep breath together, and they push forward with the hard work of the investigation, the corrective actions, and the notification. And at the end of the day, you have a system whose citizens are more confident in the forensic product that they encounter in, in the criminal justice system. Another uh, example that I, I hope that laboratories will aspire to is how the Houston Forensic Science Center deals with errors. So something that I, I feel strongly about, whenever we talk about the duty to correct and notify, about the importance of audits and notifying individuals, the pushback is always, but that's gonna take so much time, it's going to take so many resources. Well, it only does if you don't have an adequate quality management system. If you have a functional and vigilant quality management system, most of the time these errors and sometimes misconduct get caught right away. And so you're only dealing with a handful of cases. You're not dealing with an overwhelming uh, number of cases. And something that the Houston Forensic Science Center has done is when they have a nonconformity or an error or an act of misconduct that has infected the integrity of a case, they send out a press release. I get a press release in New York City from the Houston Forensic Science Center that describes the problem and how they're going to address it. And then it gets reported to the Texas Forensic Science Commission as well. And so there are multiple points of transparency. And I think it's a incredibly brave way to talk about error, but at the same time, you've seen how this laboratory has addressed the problems, and it was only in the case of misconduct where an individual was disciplined for their role in a laboratory problem. But in all other cases, there were corrective actions that looked at the point of delivery or the specific issue that needed to be corrected at the system level to prevent that problem from happening again. Houston is a good example of how the use of some of the mechanisms that look at uh, being proactive about error can help you in a, in a variety of other ways, either through your quality management system or elsewise. So we actually work with Houston on some of their uh, activities in this regard with respect to toxicology. So we uh, some samples in urine or in blood for them. And one of the things they found was that uh, just by happenstance, they had a freezer that failed along with hundreds of print samples. And it happened to be that some of the blind samples associated with their program to ensure quality through blind testing were in those freezers as well. By checking those against what was known uh, should have been in those samples, they were able to validate the uh, reliability of the remaining forensic case samples as well. So one of the things that's good about being proactive is that you have mechanisms in place that you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise that allow you to maintain your operations, be more efficient, get ahead of problems before they occur. It makes you a, a, a truly a quality management system, in my view, it gets, because it's true QMS is more than just about the paperwork. It's, it's also about how you are identifying and dealing with the uh, problems that inevitably will arise when you're doing technical work. Absolutely, absolutely. And to my knowledge, blind testing in the way that Houston has 
um, has implemented it. And, and I would pause to say that Houston is not the only lab that does it. Um, Harris County and the Defense Forensic Science Center have also implemented some blind testing. But Houston is the only laboratory that has committed to it with a goal of 5% of their workflow in all of their accredited disciplines. And when they've done that, they've also been able to determine when the problem with the evidence happened outside the lab. And I think that's really important because it's not always what happens within the lab um, that might have contributed to the problem with the evidence. And, and to my knowledge, blind testing is the only strategy that's available now that could detect dry labbing or other types of misconduct. It's definitely the most effective way. It's a difficult one because if you're going to do blind testing, you need to have a, a very deliberate approach to it that means that you're actually uh, working within the system of a particular laboratory and how the samples are labeled and so on and so forth. It takes it takes some effort, but uh, it certainly is, is possible. It's not something that, that's impossible to do. It's done in other sectors all the time. It can be done in forensic science. I think it's important to kind of catch one of the things that you said, and that is that uh, some of these things are oftentimes not in the forensic laboratory. There, there is kind of a holistic view here in terms of uh, obviously uh, half of the DNA exonerations don't have anything to do with forensic science, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the issues within forensic science really shouldn't be considered something in, a, in isolation. There are, there's this broader issue that Innocence Project and all of us are concerned about with respect to how the criminal justice system needs to look at these same exact issues uh, outside the laboratory as well. Right. And there is an effort to help criminal justice organizations across the country adopt uh, Sentinel events reviews. And so far, most of those reviews have focused on law enforcement-related issues and haven't kind of percolated down to the forensic science work yet, although I would submit that that's what the Texas Forensic Science Commission does on a regular basis. But it, everything is interconnected, and it may be because of a laboratory structure that the forensic laboratory has done that all that it can to report the error, but that the information about the error isn't being distributed more widely or to the right person. So for that reason, one of the things that we advocate for in the Forensic Science Commission is the development of a policy for notification. And Texas has a defendant notification policy, and we believe that more systems need to have some sort of process in place to deliver information when things happen, and that these commissions can put together a committee of diverse stakeholders who are populated in balance, and having this diversity would ensure that if a transcript needs to be pulled, if a case file needs to be found, if a police report needs to be brought into the mix, that all of these stakeholders are there and can do it and can help and that they're all working together to ensure justice at the end of the line. And it brings people together to what everyone's common goal is at the end of the day. And it also ensures that it builds in that ability to embrace error and to, to address error at a kind of a holistic institutional level. So that brings us full around because in my, my view, I think sometimes uh, – when I hear young people say they want to get into this or that aspect of policy and that kind of thing, I, 
one of the things I, I tell them is to learn from science because science learns how to be interdisciplinary. If, if you're going to be successful in a particular branch of physics, oftentimes the thing you need to do is work with a biologist or a chemist or whomever, and that's just taken for granted now in the scientific community, that ability to sort of work outside. You have your specialization, certainly, but the ability to work outside with your colleagues who have complementary expertise is important. And I think this is true. This is something that the justice system and governments can learn more broadly, and that is that that it's really, really important for us to learn how forensic science works with law enforcement and works with the officers of the court and the legal community and with all the other parts of the, the system in appropriate ways and learn how to, to use kind of a broader vision and, and a cooperative vision to, to address problems and understand problems fundamentally so that everyone can be more effective. Right, right. And as a graduate student in epidemiology, I was part of study teams, research teams that included epidemiologists who have the expertise to design a well-designed study, statisticians who crunched the numbers and opined on the methodology, uh, clinicians who actually are the on-the-ground people who know how the particular condition is that we're studying works and what all the real-world factors are, and research scientists who have the specific chemical, biological, or um, engineering expertise in the intervention that we're looking at. And so the concept of a diverse team that is multifaceted is very natural to me. And in the criminal justice realm, it's even more important because we have an adversarial system. And so we wouldn't be able to approach problems with a balanced view unless the stakeholders who are involved in the discussion are also in balance. Well, I think forensic scientists get that message any as much or as well as anybody in the criminal justice system. And I know many, many folks in forensic science are ready to lead the way with that kind of uh, approach. And, and I think that they would be surprised. I think a lot of folks would be surprised to say, oh, so this is this is the message from the Innocence Project, too. And I, I think it's a real unifying unifying message, literally and figuratively. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so uh, very much appreciate having you on, Just Science, Sarah, and uh, really look forward to uh, hopefully we'll, we'll hear from you or some of your colleagues again another time on the podcast. And I really, really appreciate you you being willing to be a part of it and being on the program. Thank you so much, John. And I really appreciate this opportunity um, to chat about something I'm so passionate about and an area of study and in our criminal justice system that I think really needs more support. Thank you so much again, Sarah, and we'll see you all next time. This episode concludes our Improving the System season. Stay tuned for our next season, NIJ Research and Development, which will be recorded at the 2020 AFS Annual Scientific Meeting. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.